You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. I invite you to take a seat this morning and turn with me in your Bibles to Judges uh, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 4 and 5. And as you turn there uh, this morning, if you don't have your Bible, please stick your hand up. An usher will be more than happy to give you a copy of God's Word that you can not just hear the Word, but see the Word in front of you and have full impact of what is going to happen here today in this place. And as you turn there, Judges chapter 4 and 5, just want to say it's great to be back with you. It's not that we didn't go anywhere. Just to let you know we didn't go anywhere. I remind you every summer, I'm not a teacher. I don't get all summers, all summer off like the slacker teacher in our midst. Kidding, kidding. Uh, but I've had the opportunity the last few weeks to speak at Harvest Mississauga and then Harvest Union County. And so just to see what God is doing in other parts of the, 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 the world, North America, is a, so, uh, is a blessing to me and I pray a blessing to them. But I just want to assure you that God is at work in greater places uh, around the world. And uh, it's, we're a part of something bigger. We're a part of something bigger. And it's always good to remind ourselves of that, that we are not the center of the universe. They remind us often we are a, uh, a crumb of a sliver of the pie of what God is doing in the world. And so it's really good to be a part of all that God is doing. So blessings and greetings from those churches. Uh, they uh, both express their appreciation for allowing uh, us to come. And, and just a blessing for me as well to be there and see uh, how God is working. You see how God does different ways of doing church. It's just a blessing uh, for me. Um, so also good to be back. Always love being back with our people. And just uh, one of the things that fires me up is just a systematic of God's study of God's word with your people. It's just nothing compares to it. This is for me. This is the best. And so uh, you're the best. And so this is always a, a privilege for me as well. And so Judges chapter 4 and 5, we've been learning a lot. We've been learning a lot through this book, uh, Old Testament, but new to so many people because a lot of churches don't go to the old anymore. So this is an Old Testament book, but new to so many. And if you've been following along the last few weeks with the messages from Pastor Brett and Pastor Andy, we've been learning a lot about the fickleness of the human heart. You've been learning that, seeing that? At the same time, we're learning a lot about the faithfulness and the patience of God. Isn't God's faithfulness and patience astounding? Come on, we bring our, we bring our mess to God and say, God, here we are. We expect God to be like, forget that, get that out of my face. He's like, yeah, bring it to me, bring it to me. I love you for who you are, and I'll be patient with you, and I'll work with you. Just keep your eyes fixed on me. God loves us. He pursues us. He disciplines us at times, but yet he never stops loving us and he restores us. Every time we fall, he restores us. And we see these pictures in Judges of really a, a glorious God. We see these pictures of Judges. We've studied now three out of the 12 Judges we're going to study over the summer. And we see a picture of, of really of God and how he, he ministers to his people. And he's there for his people and he never lets his people go. And we've seen uh, throughout this, we're going to see throughout this book Judges, some good Judges. Some are really glowing reports of Judges of what we're going to see today with Deborah and Barak. Then we see some Judges that are like, well, they're definitely not perfect and, and some flawed judges. We're going to see those kind of judges. In all the judges we see, though, it's pointing us to a greater reality of Jesus Christ. The ultimate hero that we have in this book, in this life, is Jesus Christ, his very own son, given to us as our ultimate redemption. That's what judges is all about. 
showing us the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And so as we get into Judges chapter 4 today, we're going to look at another story of, of rescue of the Israelite people. And it's really a story that is really one that is, uh, causes the Jewish people to stop and go, hmm. Things that make you go, hmm. It's an unexpected twist. It's something they did, totally didn't count on. If the Jewish people were reading this story, they'd be like, what? What is this doing in the Bible? This doesn't make any sense to me. It shows that God moves in such mysterious ways. We don't get God's ways all the time, but God moves in only God ways that are sometimes they catch us off guard. They're unexpected. Do you agree with me on that? It's another unexpected movement of God in the Israelite people. It's a story that the Israelites would say, hmm, didn't see that coming. Couldn't have predicted this one. It's a story of Deborah and Barak. An unexpected twist. And I'm just going to, first of all, explain to you how we're going to do this this morning. We're going to do it a little differently than normal. I'm just going to help you understand all the nuances of this passage. And we're going to save the application to the very end. So we're just going to talk through the story and help you understand it and save the nuances till the end. And uh, you can write this down in your notes if you're taking notes. So here we go. First and foremost, uh, turn from God and you're going to face his discipline. Turn from God and you will face his discipline. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, Deborah and Barak. And the people of Israel again, again, circle that word again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. This part is totally expected. This isn't the unexpected part. This part is totally expected. Here's what, here's what happened after the brave deliverer Ehud came. You heard that story last week from Andy. Again, a bit of a twist, isn't there, isn't there? Don't you think the Bible is so amazing? It's so not boring. So many stories, you're like, wow, I would have never thought of that. Ehud comes and he delivers his people and they have 80 years of peace. And you think, oh, the 80 years of peace, they must have worshiped God with all their heart. It must have been turning into a Christian nation and, and things must have been so good for them. In fact, the exact opposite happened. Just like it happens to us when we go through these seasons of ease, ease and comfort, what generally happens is uh, we don't generally dive into the Lord. We tend to walk away from the Lord, don't we? So 80 years of peace, and the people were like, this is so good. So instead of being on their knees, they started getting up, and they started walking in their own way again, their own path. They started forgetting about the Lord. Maybe the path was too comfortable. They thought, well, this is kind of boring. They started straying off the path of God and kind of dabbling in the woods a little bit. Well, this isn't so bad. God's going to stay on the path. It's not so bad. So they stray a little further in the woods, and they started doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What was so evil in the sight of the Lord? They started, again, cutting corners on obedience, Easy to do, cut corners on obedience, and they started taking matters into their own hands and thinking that they were, they were God instead of pursuing the real God. They basically had a sin relapse, just like we see in, in people who struggle with drug addiction or alcoholism. There's relapses. Israelites had another sin relapse in all the ways God warned them not to. Skipping crucial steps of obedience, not dissing themselves from the, Israel, from the Canaanites, and so tangled in paganism and idolatry. At this point, even in chapter 4, you want to scream like, come on, Israel, like, come on, don't you get it yet? They're so, you want to say stupid, but you know the word comes out of our lips? They're so human. They're so human, so prone to doing their own thing. So easy it is, let's be honest, so easy it is to identify with them, so easy to get spiritually lazy and selfish and start doting to the flesh instead of choosing sin over choosing God. And so this is what happened happening to them. Ehud dies. They go into this peaceful time, and yet they wander from God in this peaceful time. They wander so far away from God, they found themselves in a deep ravine. 
Get into the woods a little bit. Seems good. I can still see the path. Get so far away from God. They found themselves at the bottom of a deep ravine. But that was a God-ordained ravine that they wouldn't stray too far from them. And so God steps in. This is the other expected part of this, verse 2. And the Lord steps in. He loves them too much. He's been beckoning from the path all along. Don't go too far. Like, come back, come back, come back to no avail. So ordains the ravine for them to find themselves at the bottom of a pit. Part of the Lord's discipline, this is a biblical truth, a biblical concept that, again, is not talked about much today, but it's real, it's true. And the Lord, look at this, the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. So it wasn't like, oh my goodness, look at another unfortunate incident that happened here. Actually, the Lord allowed it to happen. He made it happen. He sold his people into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, to this mighty king of Canaan who reigned in Hazar. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived at Aherosheth Hagoyim. You understand the text, Sisera is actually not a Canaanite. This is showing the power of, the power of Jabin. Sisera is probably the leader of another nation that comes to Jabin and says, Hey, you're so powerful, king. If we can be on your team, if we can be on your side, if you protect us, we'll fight for you. I'll be in charge of your army. Jabin says, that sounds like a good plan because you look at it, Jabin's got a a lot of power behind him and he's got a lot of uh, nations at his disposal. Look what happens here next. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help for this is the reality. Jabin, uh, under his command of the commander Sisera, has 900 chariots of iron. And he's oppressing the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So this isn't just like any kind of chariots, the old wooden ones where they'll, you know, put a stick in the wheels and the thing spins over and the wheels fall off. These are like iron chariots. He has money. He's got resources. He's got power. These are like the tank of chariots. And so Israel is being oppressed. You have to notice this as you look through Judges 2. It's getting, the oppression is getting harder and harder and harder. It's like, we thought you learned your lesson. I guess it's going to have to turn on the heat. Turn up the heat a little bit. It's, this, is, this is the most cruel oppression they face so far. It gets them to the point where they're like, I can't do it, I need help. For 20 years this goes on, 80 years of peace, 20 years of oppression. If you're like me, you're thinking, well, 20 years of discipline, that's pretty harsh. Like small crime, big time, like what's up with that? In our culture, 20 years is life in prison. (laughs) And you're like, really, what, did they just really cut some corners? Is that all they did? And they got into a little bit of idol worship and they thought they were better than God? Like, is that really that big of a deal? Absolutely it is to God. God's not being cruel. This is punishment for their apostasy. Look around and you see this everywhere. Apostasy, what's apostasy? The abandonment or renunciation of a religious belief. And really, they're turning their backs on God. And so God disciplines. Why? Because he's this mean, cruel God? No, because he loves them. And sometimes the little swat on the butt doesn't just do the trick. And so because he loves them, he'll do whatever it takes to keep them from walking fully away from him. And so sometimes what he has to do is just discipline us in sometimes ways that seem harsh to us, but ways that are good for us and right for us. You know the DC Talk song, some people gotta learn the hard way. That's it. That's Israelites. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's me too. And so because God loves them, get this, because God loves them, he disciplines them. This isn't a mean, harsh, cruel God who's hammering down the life sentence we only deserve like a six-month term. This is God being like, you're not getting it, you're not learning. Israel and, and us, all of us, are just like my son Nick, really. 
little swat on the butt, didn't hurt, hand. In other words, hit my hand too, Dad. And I'm just like, well, that's not going to work. You think to yourself, what's it going to take for this kid to learn? What's it going to take? All right, buddy, to your room. No! Like, that's the ultimate life sentence for Nick. <laughs> away from toys, away from, so that's the go-to. In your room, you've lost. And you know how he gets there half the time? Kicking and screaming and literally, he looks so sweet, doesn't he? Apparently, he's like his dad when I was a kid. Swinging and limpus. You put him there and you close the door. Why? Because you love him and you know if he doesn't learn this lesson, it's going to be detrimental to not just his life, but everybody else's in the days to come. And so that's what God's doing with Israel here. He's putting them under discipline. And what, what, why does God put his people under discipline? Only so that they'd finally turn back to him and say, enough, enough. And so, so God's leaning in on them. He's leaning in on them. They're under the weight of their own sin. If you've ever carried your own sin, that's no, that's no easy load. Seems joyful, there's no easy load. Then the Canaanites are pressing upon that, uh, even weighing have more heavily on the, their own sin, Canaanites, and then the discipline of God is a cherry on top. It's just God like, like trying to pin them down so they'll see his face again and long for his presence. He's like, say uncle, say uncle, I won't do it, I won't do it. Finally they're like, uncle, already. I see it. Let me up for air. And so of course when we yell, uncle, and we say, okay, God, I get it enough. I want you again. Look, they, they cried for help. This is key. This is the key to repentance. You're crying out to the Lord for help. I can't do it anymore, God. I understand the, the bitterness of my sin. I get where I am because of your discipline. I can't do it. Help! See that word, help! God always steps in. God always steps in on behalf of his people. So turn from God, know this, you're going to face his discipline. We are just like the Israelites. You turn from God, you're going to face his discipline. You start wandering off the path, you will face his discipline. You will find consequences you never intended that you think are too harsh for you. It's just true because God loves you that much. We're going to speak more of this, about this at the end, but just know that. Turn from God, face his discipline. I tell you this because I love you. I'd prefer to see you all not under the discipline of the Lord in the near future. Point number two, though, have to understand this as well. As serious of a passage this is, as a, much of a wake-up call as it is for us, even those of you who are here like, oh, I got sin, but it's not a big deal. It's a big deal to God. Write this down in your notes, point number two. Come back to God, and you can count on his restoration. Come back to God, you can count on his res restoration. Look at the way this whole restoring uh, process happens. This is the unexpected twist of chapters four and five. The first two words, now Deborah. Seems innocent enough, but like now Deborah, already the Jewish people are like, Deborah? What's a woman got to do with this story? Like what role is she going to play? Like this is, this is profound. I thought we we're dealing with heroes here. Deborah really doesn't fit into that. In a male-dominated society, she was a woman, clearly, and this is not kosher with Israel. Deborah, for real, for real, for real. Look at this. Now Deborah, a prophetess. Deborah means honeybee or queen bee. She's a prophetess. No prophetesses or prophets in the Old Testament were ever prophets or prophetesses by their own design. I think I'm going to give myself the title of prophet. You know, today I think I'm going to be a prophetess. It just didn't happen that way. This was ordained by God. She's the wife of Lapidoth. Lapidoth means um, torches or flashes. And she's judging Israel at this time. 
put the new two names together, Queen Bee. Um, torches or flashes, it probably speaks to the reality that, that Deborah's a bright light in the days of dark governors. Maybe there's such a moral decline here that, that there's no capable men to lead, and so Deborah became the spiritual authority. But that's probably not the case because prophets and prophetesses were all ordained by God. He put them there on purpose as institutions of his, his plans and his purposes. And the Bible does record instances of prophetesses. Spokeswoman for God, just like a prophet is spokeswoman for God. We see this in Miriam, the story of Miriam, Moses and Aaron's sister. We see Deborah, we see Huldah, uh, the, one, the prophetess whom Josiah turned to and said, I need wisdom, where do I go? We see the unnamed prophetess who bore Isaiah's son. We see in the New Testament, Anna, the prophetess who was Luke chapter 2, she was waiting for Jesus, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Messiah, praying and fasting. She was a prophetess. We see Philip's four daughters who had uh, prophetess capabilities. And so we see clearly here that sometimes God ordains prophetesses to accomplish his purposes. Deborah is clearly judging Israel at the time. God ordained, she's a woman of God, and she had her little, look at this, verse 5, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah, so under her little tree named after her, pretty significant, don't you think, between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, the people of Israel came over to her for judgment, and so the debate is like, what, kind of, what was going on here, was she actually the judge, and she's like solving moral and civil and all the different grievances people have, was, was her husband really the judge, and he's like, you got a problem, <laughs> go see my wife, was that the way it worked, was she preaching and teaching under the tree, was that her role as a prophetess, and these are all questions that surround the passage, again, that we're going to answer as we get into the application of this. Uh, but the, they all beg the question, like, what's going on here? Bottom line is probably a little bit of everything. She's, she is, for, for all intents and purposes, God's woman for the day. Moral decline or not, she's God's woman for the day. She's helping people. She's preaching and teaching the word of God. And she's the only judge, honestly, in this book that is really ultimately truly godly and she's the only one that's not a warrior but she's this bold courageous woman of principle and truth remember that little cry for help that little cry for help the Israelites did they're under the help it actually their cries heard God's inbox and he forwarded the message to his prophetess Deborah little queen bee over there under her tree and so Deborah hears from God in verse 6, she sent and summoned, summoned Barak, the son of uh, Abinoam from uh, Kadesh Nefalti, and said to him, she's saying to him now, she says, isn't it her command? This is the Lord's command. Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded you? This is, this is of God. I'm telling you something of God. Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 of the people of Nefalti and, and uh, the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera. This isn't Deborah saying she's going to draw anything out. This is God speaking again. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river of Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. This is like, hey, hey, God's heard the cries of his people, Barak. Clearly I'm not a warrior. Clearly I'm not a leader. You're the God-ordained person for winning this battle. Come, get 10,000. Go follow God's commands, and he is going to Win. He's going to deliver the people. 
and promise deliverance. Look at Barak's response. Look, if this is, you know, any noble man, they'd probably be like, okay, let's do it, let's do it. Look what he says. Barak asked, said to her, okay, I get this. Can you imagine this? This command of the Lord. Okay, I get this. This is a big task. I'm not sure I'm up to it. Look what he says. If you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Like, what's happening here? Is this this little wimpy guy going like, okay, I'll go, but like, I'm going to hide behind your skirt. Is that what's happening? Or is this more this guy going like, Barak saying, yeah, I get it. I heard from God. If I'm going to go, though, I need God's presence. You're the only prophetess in the land right now. I want God to go with me. I need God to go with me. It's probably the more accurate interpretation in this text. Deborah's response, I will surely go with you. I get it, you need God. I'm at this time the representation of God. Surely I'll go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. Look at, look at this, is, this is a, some people think it's a punishment for him not willing to go. I don't think it's that at all. I think he's just showing that this is not going to lead to your glory. This is not for your own fame, Barak. If you've got any of these, these ideas that you're going to be this famous warrior now, this is not for that. This is a God-ordained deal for you to fall through it, but this is not going to be for your glory. You know how you're going to know that God is really with you? He's going to sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. People here are thinking, oh, Deborah, she's going to come through. She's going to come through in the clutch. Uh, not the case. You're going to see how this works out. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So Barak goes and he gets all his troops together. Actually not wimpy at all. He's the only guy that's going to step up and do this thing. Deborah's actually very wise. She's not a warrior at all. She recruits someone who can do the job as God's commanded her to do. They get up, the battle cries, battles are lining up, all these, all these tanks versus all these men on foot. Look at the map here, look at the graph. You can see how the battle went down. The battle is where the big X is. All these people are gathering. The... Sisera's coming up, Sisera's coming up from his place, crossing across the Kishon River, and the battle's happening, and foot versus tanks. Clearly we know what's probably going to come from that unless God steps in. And then we see uh, here what happens. All these people gather together. Sisera, Deborah says to Barak in verse 14, up. There's a battle cry for you, hey? Up. Let's go. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? See, this is encouraging. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down with all of his men and and. The Lord routed Sisera. Look at verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. Like, 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 Deborah says, go. Like, get up. Go. Barak goes. They win the battle. How do they win the battle? Well, chapter 5, honestly, is just a recap of all the battle in more detail. It's a song of Deborah and Barak, the one that they wrote after the battle was over. And it shows us what happened. The chariots came up over the Kishon River and all of a sudden God opened the heavens and rain came down and the chariots all got stuck in mud. They went to, to run away. They tried to retreat. The river had come up so high, the river sweeping them away. They, they were not prepared to battle on foot as the Israelites were. And so the battle is just, they're just routed by the, the Israelites. And God steps in and clearly takes them out and 
Verse 16, Barak, all of a sudden with a whole bunch of courage and realizing that God is on his side, he pursued the chariots and, and he ran after them until they all fell by the sword. Every one of the army was killed. Amazing. All this from a little prophetess and this guy who was doing who knows what until she called him out to do it. Verse 17, but Sisera, he wasn't like, he wasn't like Eglon. Remember the little chubby little guy from last week's sermon? Sisera was in shape. He starts running. I'm just going to summarize this for you. He starts running. And he comes across the tent of a woman named Jael. And, and he says, you know, can, can I have some food and some drink? Can you just let me in and, and give me a place of harbor? She, she does, breaking all the Jewish customs of the day. The Jewish customs of the day was that only the husband, only the male had an exclusive right to welcome another male into his tent. Then she feeds him and, and puts him down for a nap. Already this is like cause that could be a um, death penalty for her. Having another man in her tent, it looks pretty sketchy at best. And then while he's sleeping, you know what she does? She does what a, any good old housewife would do. She goes and she grabs a tent peg. She's got the gift of hospitality for sure. Not the little tent pegs, we used to throw a hammer in our tents. And like the, the, putting, in, putting up and taking out the tent was the woman's role. And so she, she had the tent peg. She takes a little household appliance. She puts it into his scalp. It's in the text. You can read it later. It's kind of gross. But she like hammers that sucker into his head and staples his face to the ground. That's breaking some pretty big Jewish customs, just for the record. Hospitable people. But it fulfills the prophecy. Remember, Deborah said, hey, this, you're not going to get any glory for this. Someone else, another woman's going to take down the, the king. They thought it was going to be Deborah. It's this little random woman, Jael, this random housewife, grabs a household appliance, takes down the king. Uh, Barak, <laughs> have you seen him? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Maybe. Oh, I've seen him. There he is. And this is what liberated the people from the mighty hand of Canaanite oppression. Wow, hey? Again, the Bible's full of stories. We think it's supposed to have these little happy endings. It's all supposed to work out. Crazy. Who would append this? God penned this. This is the way God did it so that we would know that God is the restorer and the deliverer of his people. And it's not just an Old Testament story for us to be like, that's a cool story. Wait till I tell my friends there is murder in the Bible and desperate housewives for sure. But this is a story that has so many lessons for us in. We stop and say, what just happened? What does it all mean? There's God lessons throughout this whole chapter, chapter four and five of Judges. First question we have is, how does this really line up with what the Bible teaches about leadership? The elephant in the room is like, but isn't, isn't, isn't it supposed to be men who lead God's people? What about this whole mantle of leadership that God set up from the Old Testament that's going to be that men who lead? It brings up all kinds of questions for us. And so I've arranged for Brian McGrath, one of our elders, to come and teach us all these important lessons today. Kidding. Brian's like, no. <laughs> it's a question that comes up, isn't it, though? Like, what, where does this all, like, how does it shake down with God? I thought men are supposed to lead. And how does this all shake down? And, and so there's, there's really two views on this from uh, different biblical scholars. There's, there's two views on this whole, like, leadership thing. Leadership matters, first of all, you have to know. Leadership does matter. 
Those of you who think that leadership doesn't matter, and it doesn't matter what you do and who does, as long as you're following the God. Actually, leadership does matter. And God makes it clear here, where there's an absence of true biblical leadership, things are going to go south. Where true biblical leadership comes in, they might not be perfect, they might not uh, do it the way you think they should, but there's actually going to be blessing, and, and, and God's going to meet his people there. A couple of views on this whole thing of women in leadership. Uh, this is what we're going to tackle first before we get to some of the, the, the implications for our own lives. Um, first view is this, that Deborah steps up to fill a leadership vacuum uh, that the Israelites didn't have. Understandable view. It makes sense to us. Uh, and yet the text never says that there's an absence of male leadership. It says that she was a prophetess uh, appointed uh, by God and anointed by God. And so some liberal people would take this as like, see, I told you, like, it's okay. Like, women in leadership in the church, doesn't matter. Just follow God. If you just follow God, it's okay. Women, step up, step up and lead. Uh, there's a danger in just jumping to that conclusion. I'm going to help you unpack this. But you have to understand that this, this might not have been a leadership void. This might have just been God ordained this to go down in a way that would just be totally unexpected so people would truly see it's God who did it and not man. The other view of this is that Deborah is Yahweh's response to the cries of his people, but not his answer. Barak is actually the answer. Deborah hears the cries. Deborah's God's response to the cries. Barak is actually the answer for how God's going to deliver them. And in fact, Deborah did this right. She understood her role in society. She understood her role as a prophetess of God. It's not her role to go fight the battle. That's a man's role. And so what did she do? She recruited the only one in the nation, maybe, that would step up and actually follow through with what God wanted. She commandeered Barak. In fact, if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, it tells us that Deborah is really not the hero of the story. Who is? Barak. It says that Barak was commended for his faith. It doesn't even mention Deborah. That's because a, 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 a patriarchal man wrote the book. Uh, Holy Spirit ordained every word in the book. Amen. So the fact that Deborah was missing from Hebrews chapter 11 is not actually because some man is like, let's write her out of the story, because clearly she's in the story. It's God saying, this is exactly what happened and how I want it to happen. Barak is actually the man that I want to highlight as the one who stepped up and followed his leadership. A couple other things to consider. Actually, I turned through all these things just to clarify. I gleaned some wisdom off wise old sage Tim Keller to help me understand this in, in a clear way. So... Uh, all this little section on leadership, you can give him most of the credit for this. I'm just a slow little pastor from Niagara. He's so much smarter than I am. Here's some other things to consider in this whole idea of leadership. Um, Tim Keller points out that this is a record of what did happen rather than a record of what should have happened. This is what did happen. Maybe this isn't exactly what should have happened if, if the society was functioning the way God intended it to. Another complicating factor of this whole like men and women in leadership is this. Israel, in this point in the text, is both a civil state and a people of God. So the question is, is this a civil role done in a godly way, or is this a church role? Old Testament's really helpful with helping us unpack this. In the Old Testament, there's three offices. There's prophet. Come on. Prophet, priest, and king. Throughout the Bible, women have been known to be prophetesses and also judges or queens in different places, but yet none were ever priests in the Bible. Leviticus 21 tells us that all the priests descended from Aaron, so clearly in Scripture we see women have an equal, are equal in value 
in dignity and ability to use their gifts in any role other than priest. Equal but not equivalent. New Testament also points this out. There's deaconesses. And there's, there's people who serve in great places, but there's, there's never elders or overseers and bishops from start to finish. Men who lead spiritually. It's the Old Testament, New Testament are men who are called to lead the church spiritually. New Testament, we see this clearly. Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Peter 5 always refers to leadership in the church as godly called men. And also the stress and a struggle for some. So I'm trying to explain this clearly, but also sympathetically and compassionately because I know people won't understand this. And it's definitely not a call for this male chauvinistic power at the top coming down. Men have their role here. Women down here, it's not it. In fact, when Jesus came back, he elevated women. He elevated women to the rightful place in society. But it just shows us that God has ordained some offices for the role of male and others for the role of female according to the way he's designed us. And so even in our church, we make no apology for the fact that the scriptures point out for us that male are to lead in the church. It's not a cultural thing. It comes back to the, the, the whole, even, even the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have different roles, all are distinct, and yet mutual submission all play their roles perfectly together. That's the way God's created male and female to complement each other and play, their roles, uh, play out their roles to complement and make one full part together. And so for those of you guys who are sitting here going, well, see, I don't have to lead my home after all. You know, no one did, so Deborah did. I'll leave it to my wife. <clears throat> Wrong answer. For those of you who are thinking here, like, oh, that's good. That women can lead the church. Thank goodness. Let's get a woman power. Like, that, that's not the answer either. The answer is God has still ordained the role of male headship within the family, within the church, but to be do so with a spirit of submission and humility and reverence before God and before uh, whoever you're leading. It's actually, guys, for us, it's a call to be like Barack. Sometimes we need a nudge into leadership, don't we? Sometimes God has ordained us to have a strong wife to nudge us into our rightful place of leadership. And our wives need to be challenging us, and wife, if you need to be challenging and, and, and motivating your husband to fulfill the role that God has called him to within your house. You don't have to be a type A to lead. You have to be a, guy who, a man who wants to honor God and love God and lead the way God's called you to lead. You have a spiritual responsibility, not just in your house, but in your workplace, in your church, to be men who actually lead, not wimpy men who hide behind excuses and who hide behind Maybe tomorrow's, and I don't want to get uncomfortable, men who will stand up and lead if they know that God has called them to lead. Let's be honest, men. This is like few and far between, and I think a lot of men in our culture would love to have women lead because it's so much easier. And the courage seems to be lost in the reality of male leadership within our culture. Again, I go back to Tim Keller's sentence. This is the way it happened, but probably not the way it should have happened. Bottom line is, God, guys, God's calling us to lead. God's calling us to be like Barak, to, 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 to hear God's voice and to, to ask God to go with us and then to go and to be bold and be courageous and not be these wimpy little passive, we'll see what happens and make no decisions. Let everyone else be strong except for me. And That's just not it. You know, you know what God's calling us to, men? 
to see this story and be like, I want to be like Brock. I want to be known for my faith. I want to be known for my courage. I want, I want my family to have someone to follow. I want our church to be filled with godly men, godly men who will lead us in the ways of God. But that means, women, you have to be willing to, on the other side of things, I know maybe touch on some things that are going to get me in trouble here. Send all your emails to uh, admin at harvestnagra.ca. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, Connie. It means women, you have to understand this too. And some of you have to take a step back and let your husbands lead. Yeah, there's a time to pull. What about Deborah? She pushed. Yeah, there's a time to push for sure and encourage and challenge and maybe get other men around him to, to help him see it maybe. But there's also a time for you to sit back and say, you know what? You know part of your curse? It says this in Genesis chapter 3 that your curse is you want to be over your husband. You want dominion over your husband. And, and that's a sinful thing. And that's just going to mess everything up, the whole order of how God's ordained things. And so maybe some of your roles is to be step back and say, you know what, honey, I'm going to let you lead. I'm not going to be silent. I'm not going to be a doormat. That's not it. But I'm going to let you fulfill God's calling upon your life, and I'm going to let you lead. Easier for some, harder for others. But this is God's mandate for biblical leadership. I was tempted to like, give this to Andy last week, but I thought I'd spare him. Leadership matters, bottom line. Leadership really does matter. That's one of the obvious implications of this text. Here's another obvious implication of this text for your own life. Now, that's more of a church, church-wide uh, implication and application. And, and just for the record, we do have godly men who lead our church, men who seek the Lord and take his responsibility seriously. And if you see them after church, they thank them. They put in countless hours. Our, our elders put in countless hours, thankless hours. I get to be the face. So sorry about that. But our elders actually put in a lot of time and prayer and effort and there's sweat and there's tears and there's hard work. And please don't minimize that. They are actually endeavoring to do what God has called us to. So thank them after church. Not today. But also, here's some personal implications for this. Um, I think you've probably already picked up on this. Let me hit on it again. Um, the whole idea of Israel and where Israel was, where they should have been and where they always went to, just, just notice this in the text. Be careful of the slippery slope of sin. Guard against the slippery slope of sin. Israel found themselves in these pickles all the time in their history. And it wasn't because they didn't know the truth. It wasn't because they hadn't experienced the truth. It's because they got lazy and they got complacent. And they somehow got in their minds that God is more love than God is more holy. And it doesn't matter. God just loves me as I am. And I can do whatever I want. And God doesn't care. Clearly he does. You have to realize this, brothers and sisters. Your sin matters. It creates a dissonance in your own hearts. It ruins the harmony you have with others every time. And ultimately, it's going to disrupt your relationship with God. Sin is not something that we mess with, play with, cuddle with, minimize. Somehow in our culture, we've come to treat sin as, as we think it's this cuddly little, little pet. Like the slow oris. Look at the picture of the slow oris. Look at this, this thing up here. Isn't it cute? It looks like a little baby Ewok. 
that you get too close to one of these little animals, and guess what? They will, they will, they will, reach, they will lash out. They will bite you. They'll put their venom in you, and it might even kill you. You look at that. That's so cuddly. It's a lot of people's image of sin. Got my nice little pet here, and as long as I keep him in my back pocket, I hide him in my home, and no one sees him. I keep him in his little cage to run the wheel. You know, it's okay. And I enjoy him in my own private time. And can I, can I dispel any myths of sin right now? Sin is always evil in God's sight. The thoughts you have, the attitudes, the actions, the it's never like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's never not a big deal to God. Every little action of sin disrupts your relationship with God. It starts eating you on the inside. No, it doesn't. I'm so happy. It, it eats you on the inside if you're truly saved, and it disrupts every other relationship in your life. And God will, if you have one of your little pet sins in here today, and you're like, ah, no one sees, no one sees, you know right now because God's pounding in your heart. You maybe got an idol in your life and you've placed this. If I just have this, I'll be satisfied. Maybe, maybe you have another, whatever your sin is, and you know it right now because your heart's thumping. And somehow you think you can come in and worship God the same as everybody else, and you can read your Bible, get the same things out of your Bible, you can have this wonderful relationship with God even though you have sin in your heart. That's a fallacy of Satan. And sin is never to be cuddled with and petted and held close. Because God will discipline you. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. And he'll do anything for you to be in a right relationship with him, including sometimes humiliate you and put you in this place, allow you to get to this place where you just feel like you're suffocating and can't breathe. What's his goal? Not, not to crush you. Why does he weigh in on you? Why does he pin you down? Not to crush you, that you'll stop running. You'll finally see his face. You'll say, God, I need you and I want your presence in my life. Amen. Sin is serious before God every single time. I hate how we've made it nothing. Everyone does it. You got yours. Can't preach to me. I do have mine. I'm not preaching to you because I'm God. I'm preaching as a fellow man who needs to take my sin as seriously. I'm calling you to take your sin and to repent of your sin and to realize there's no possible way to be close to God and living in sin at the exact same time. Guard yourself against a slippery slope of sin. It's always slippery. Never end up in the ravine because you set out to end up in the ravine. It's always those little steps away from the path. Those little compromises. Those little attitudes that go unchecked. Guard yourself. Let's learn from Israel. Let's learn from them. Here's another thing you have to understand about this text. God will not be pushed aside. God is too strong and he's too glorious and he's too, he, he's too God to allow you, if you're his child, to push him aside forever. God's not like the teacher at the front of your school classroom who either doesn't see what's going on behind or doesn't care enough to respond. God is not like the old man that I grew up with in our church that had the, the, the candy man, we called him, and he'd pull out the sweaty little candies every day after church and give them to the kids. God's not like that. 
God's not even like the, the pastor at the front of the church who, who, who loves giving these challenging sermons but doesn't really care what happens with it, just loves to hear himself pontificate. God's not like that. God is like this in your life and my life. God is like the jealous husband that loves his wife so much that all he wants is her full attention back. God is like the jealous wife that longs for her husband so much that all she wants for her husband is his full affection back. This is God. Not a jealous isn't a bad thing. This is a good jealous. This is a right jealous. If someone really loves their spouse, they will not tolerate them flirting with anybody else. And that's God and your life. He's a jealous God and he will never let you erase him from the picture. He will never cut you out of his will and he will make sure you never cut him out of your life. Because he loves you and he knows what's best for you. What's best for you in this life? God is. What do you need the most in this life? God. What brings you the most satisfaction in life? He does. And so he'll go to whatever length he needs to to make sure that you get that reality. Because he loves you. Here's the fourth thing. God will always come through for his own. God will always come through for his own. His compassion and his mercy are unrelenting. He will chase you down. He will badger you. He will go to the greatest lengths to make sure you are fully his. And he will do it with joy and with vigilance. And he will never quit pursuing you. If you are God's child today, know this. You can never out the love of God. You can never run too far from God's grace. God will do whatever it takes to restore you onto himself. That's a blessing. That's a, res- that's a good place for a... Come on, look at this story. Israel, they're being pursued over and over. They fail over and over again. Does God ever give up on his people? Never. Ever. For me, I'm like, thank you, Lord. But it's true. God will go to great lengths to restore your soul. When I was a youth pastor a number of years ago in a little town of Tilsonburg, um, there was a family in the church that uh, had some sons that really struggled, and we'd try to minister to them, we'd try to reach out to them, it just seemed to be no avail. And, and one of the sons of um, this family, the oldest son, got into drugs so heavily that he was pretty much a, a lost cause. And we'd pray for the guy, we'd, we'd reach out to the guy, we just couldn't seem to, just couldn't seem to, nothing would work. And so I remember... Um, Early on into that whole journey, uh, we had just gotten there, and um, so we really didn't know the story super well, but um, Doug and Cher and the family um, basically came to the end of their rope and said, you know what, if we don't step in and rescue this guy, like, he's lost forever. So what they did is they put him in the back of their van and packed a suitcase for him and headed for Freedom Village in New York. Uh, He didn't know that until he got to St. Catharines and realized that we're going for the border. What in the world's going on? He got so angry, he actually kicked out the back van window trying to get out of the van, and the dad kept on going. Got to the border, and the border guards were like, something fishy's going on here, right? So what's the story here? Told them. They, by God's grace, let them keep going, just keep going. The son was so angry with his parents, he on this trip vowed he'd never love them again, that, that they're the meanest parents in the world. They're sending him to jail for sending him to this, this place for a year to get clean. And uh, lo and behold, uh, their parents went to the greatest, they risked everything for this. They knew that they might lose their son forever. 
And because they loved him, they went through the hardest choice of love. They took him to a place he didn't want to go and did what was right for him, even though he disagreed. Long story short, uh, Shane was at this Freedom Village for a year, and God totally radically changed his life. Came back from Freedom Village with a girlfriend who ended up becoming his wife. Life got squared away. Life got straightened out. His relationship with his parents was restored. The relationship, he said, it would never be restored. And the last I heard, living and functioning as a godly man in society with his, his wife and kids. And what an amazing story of restoration. Because you know why only because? Because the parents would do whatever it took. They were willing to do whatever it took to make sure, to make sure that their son was okay. And whatever it took to restore his life. This is what God will do with us. It might seem mean. It might seem like a jail sentence. It might seem like God doesn't love you anymore. It might seem like you want to kick out the back window of the van that God has you in. But get this. God will keep going and God will keep doing what he's going to do for your good and for his glory. Because he loves you. And he will never fail you. And he will never let you go. Psalm 103, verses 8 to 13. This is, this is God. This is what Judges shows us about God. The Lord, God, is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, as far, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the Father shows compassion to his children. This is even a compassionate passage here, believe it or not. As the Lord shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows the compassion to those who fear him. This is a picture of us and God. In all your bad choices, in all your untimely decisions, in all your hard-heartedness, as your sin piles up and almost buries you, guess what? God swoops in to the rescue. You can turn your back on God, but you know this for sure. He will never turn his face from you. You can run away from God, but you will never run from his sight if you're his child. You can become out of touch with God, but God will never lose touch with you. This is our God. And all of this just points us to the ultimate reality of God's real rescue that is only found in Jesus Christ. This whole text shows us the full reality of what God has given us in Jesus Christ, in Judges 4 and 5, the terrific trifecta here, Deborah, Barak, and Jael, and all pointing to the only one who can truly rescue you. Partial rescue in Judges, partial rescue, but, but Jesus can fully rescue you once and for all. And he promises he will do so for all those who will turn to him by faith in repentance and put their full trust in Jesus. As one of our elders prays all the time, Jesus is an all-the-way-home Savior. Mark Dever says this. When it comes to the judges versus Jesus, God will provide for you if you turn to him, if you call out to him, you say, help, God, I can't do it. Help, God will provide for you not just a new boss, a new guru or a new role model or a new president. He will give you a whole new identity, a whole new view, uh, a whole new view and a fresh start with God. 
You need what only Jesus Christ can give you. Jesus alone is fully man and fully God. He is the perfect priest, lawgiver, judge, king, and prophet we ever need. Here's the greatest unexpected. Here's the greatest unexpected in life. God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. This is the greatest unexpected twist. I am a sinner to the core. God sent Jesus to rescue us once and for all from slavery, of, from the slavery of Satan to rescue us to a life of freedom and joy and hope in him. For all those who will turn to him by faith. I'm supposed to be covering Judges chapter 5 today as well as the sermon outline goes, so let me give it to you in one sentence. <laughs> Judges chapter 5 is simply this. God is over it all. God is over it all. The song of Deborah and Barak, they got so excited about this whole victory, they got together and formed a band. They started singing praises to God. It's really a recap of the story, and it just shows us that God is over all. Notice this in chapter 4. You only see the Lord mentioned four times. In chapter 5, the real story, God is over everything. He's in every detail. He is, he is actively working his plan through his people and through, even through the enemies. God is over it all, and the victory belongs to the Lord. It's Hebrew poetry. Look. He, leaders rise up. God did that. God trampled the enemy. God's people stepped up. Some tribes sat down, actually. They didn't all jump on God's game plan for this, maybe because it was a woman who was given directions. We don't know. But we know this, that Jael was the blessed of all tent dwellers. And, and in the end, God says, all of the enemies of the Lord will perish, but his friends will like, be like the sun as he rises with might. And then we see in the end here, 20 years of captivity led to God's deliverance and 40 years of peace. 20 years of captivity, pain and suffering as they walk from God, but his deliverance led to 40 years. Double that in peace. Double that in peace. And so we see that this whole story that God is over it all. And so we look at our own lives, look at the Israelites and say, glory be to God. If you're here today and you're wrestling with this whole idea of leadership and leadership matters, and let's just be honest, guys, you're called to step up and lead. You're called to support your leaders here in our church and to pray for your leaders and to encourage and, and to even challenge them where appropriate. You're called, to, you're called to lead and to be under leadership. If you're walking in your sin today and you bring sin in here and no one else knows but you, don't just walk out of here and say that was a good sermon. Confess your sin today to God that you might be restored to him knowing this. That God loves you, he always has, and he always will, and he is in the restoration business. He wants to restore you today to a right relationship with him that you might have the fullness of life and joy that he intended. Let me pray. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and your grace in giving us this text. Thank you for the lives of Deborah and Barak and Jael. And uh, Father, these are unexpected stories and, and we hard to grapple with sometimes. But what a picture, God, of faith. And what a picture, most of all, of you rescuing your people. God, would you be our rescuer again today? Father, for those deep in sin, and they know it, oh God, with the power of the Holy Spirit, now drive that reality of their sin heavy upon their hearts. Weigh in on them, God. Weigh in, weigh in. That they might realize that their lives are being suffocated by their sin and they might turn to you for real breath and real life and a restored relationship with you. For those that are wandering, God, and dabbling with sin, wandering off the path, oh God, would you 
beckon to them from the path right now. Come back, come back. Don't go any further. Don't go any further. For those that are discouraged today, God, with the journey and it's hard and it's heavy, and it feels like the world is against them, may they remember today, God, that you are for them, not against them. That you love them with a love they can't even fathom. Father, for those that are going strong for you today, protect, watch over, give courage, give wisdom, give grace to us all, God. Give faith. In Jesus' name, amen.